I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect, communicate, create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. On this week's show, we talk about the new barista visas. We also talk about David Davis's new plan to keep the institutions of the EU outside of the EU. And we talk about a slow news week. Probably worth remembering this was recorded before 11.15 on Tuesday. What a difference an hour makes. But I guess that's why it's called Last Week in Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit. Uh, as always, I am joined by Christian Spence. Hello, Christian. Hi. And Alex Davis. You right. I'm very well, thank you. Okay, boys, let's get straight into it. Um, let's just have a quick recap of what has, or indeed what hasn't happened in Brexit this week. Um, I think, uh, well, not not a lot would be my first response. Um, we were kind of discussing just before this what we're going to talk about this week um, because everything's gone a bit quiet since Article 50 was triggered, mm. I think, which is basically what we expected to happen. Um, but there's little, little bits of, uh, little snippets of information kind of leaking out about the negotiation process and um, the way both sides see things going. Um, so I think a couple of things really which have come out uh, of the last week, first of all, is that people in Brussels and representatives from the European Commission have started to mention EFTA um, as part of a potential transitionary uh, period. Um, and that, that's quite a big one for us because uh, it's, it's, it's taking us back essentially to looking at the Norway option. And um, that kind of strategy is something which we were talking about and advocating as, a, as, a, as the way to do things probably you know, 12, 15 months ago. Now, just for our listeners who might have only... Uh, only downloaded this podcast for the first time. Just remind us what EFTA is. Uh, EFTA is the European Free Trade Association. So it's uh, it's actually just a, a, a group of, of four countries. So Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway and Switzerland. Um, and it, it's essentially uh, a small trading body with its own court, supranational court as well. Um, ah. So yeah, um, so... But basically, it, it takes us down the Norway route. So Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein uh, are all members of EFTA, but are also members of the EEA, which means that they are still members of the single market, essentially, but not members of the EU. Switzerland are slightly different because while, whilst they're members of EFTA, um, they trade with the EU based on a bunch of bilateral trade deals. So a whole bunch of individual deals, which are constantly being negotiated on different sectors and things like that. So Switzerland are slightly different, but 
it puts uh, the EFTA countries in the position essentially where they're not in the EU, but their rules still align perfectly with the single market. And as the single market develops, uh, their rules also automatically develop um, as well. Um, but the other benefit to, to EFTA is that those countries are also free to do their own trade deals. So they're not part of the common commercial policy. So EFTA can essentially negotiate as, as a, a trade group of its, of its own um, and do trade deals with third countries. So I think in the run-up to the referendum, the Norway option was put forward basically because what it would allow us to do would be to shelve the trade side of things, um, at least in the short term. And it kind of, it runs alongside the, the murmurs of a, a transitionary period and that Brussels would be happy for us to have one as long as it was limited to three years. Um, and I think what essentially they're putting this forward because they understand that the trade stuff's gonna take a lot longer than the initial two years. Uh, and this is potentially a way where that can be put on the shelf and we can say, well, we'll figure that out over the longer term. Um, but for now, we'll just figure out the divorce uh, and get us into a position where we can take our time a bit, bit more. Mm. It is bizarre that when you've only got two years, we've spent more or less the first month doing nothing. You'd have thought everyone would be on war footing. Yeah, I think I think the nature of this is probably the complexity. Um, you know, if we cast our minds right back to the referendum um, last year, we know that David Cameron had told the civil service to not prepare um, papers for what a world post-Brexit might look like because he was terrified, probably rightly, uh, that they would be leaked um, and probably wouldn't ham- would, uh, would hamper his own campaign for Remain. Um, so the civil service really has been playing catch-up um, on all of this and trying to work out where we go. I think the challenge for, I think the challenge certainly why the UK has dismissed the, the, the EFTA EA option, the Norway option, as Alex was talking about, is from Theresa May's point of view, it does require um, essentially signing up to, to jurisdiction through the European Court of Justice. Um, it almost certainly requires signing up to, to free movement. Now, there's kind of a caveat of that because the EEA treaty, the European Economic Area Treaty, theoretically has a clause mm-hmm. um, which allows you to restrict migration. Um, it has been invoked. It's been invoked by the colossal economy of Liechtenstein. Um, and they invoked it because they said, actually, our population is very small. Uh, and potentially free movement for us could mean a complete domination of our own nationality and economy. Um, so I think there's a big question about lots of sort of pro-leave campaigns have said, actually, look, we could move to the EEA, we could invoke that article, 138, I think, 128, mm-hmm. um, and we could restrict free movement from that. I think there are there probably still remain openly, you know, if we're being honest, some questions about whether you could get away with that, Yeah. Um, just because the nature of the UK economy is so different. And I think that's, I guess on the EFTA thing, that's probably the challenge still for EFTA, um, is it's a, it is a very small trade block. Um, four countries, um, none of which are particularly large in terms of economy, um, and we would utterly dominate that. You know, I think the UK is going to be you know, three or four times the size of the combined economies of EFTA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, I think I suspect there'd be there'd be some challenge on the EFTA side that they'd need to know that it was time limited. Yeah, I mean, uh, as well, just because of that risk of the UK just opening up and dominating that block. Yeah, I mean. I think that the whole the whole way through the kind of the referendum campaign, that the the main complaint against the Norway option was that it would be essentially be a betrayal, and there kind of be no be no point to all of this, um, because as Christian said, we'd have to sign up essentially to the to the four freedoms of of the, of the EU still. Um, 
Um, but also, I, I guess it can't be assumed that we would just be allowed to walk straight back into EFTA uh, for the reasons that Christians just put, just put forward. We were, we were a founding member of EFTA before we joined the EEC in 1973. So EFTA was formed in 1960. Um, and there's been, a, there's been other countries which have kind of been in and out of EFTA. But at the minute, it is a very small trading block, and obviously, we would totally dominate it. Um, and I follow, I follow EFTA and the EFTA community on, on Twitter, and they are talking about us. Now, from um, an EFTA point of view, are they, are they looking forward to us joining, potentially? Is this something they are in favour of? Yeah, I, I, there's I a hard know. one. That's it, difficult, yeah. It's hard. I mean, going back right back to last summer, um, Iceland, <clears> which is one of the members who I think currently hold the presidency uh, of EFTA, a bit like the EU, it has a rotating presidency between its members. Uh, and back then, Iceland were making positive noises um, about sort of the concept of the UK joining. Um, Norway have been a little bit quieter, but again, I think there is just that fear of, of sheer domination. Mm. You know, Norway's a lot will be the largest economy in, in EFTA as it stands now with all three million people yeah and a very different economy yeah um Mm -hmm. so it's small but it's unusual norway it's a petrochemical economy it's a petrochemical currency um which means it has all sorts of different challenges and opportunities which which don't exist for for other countries um of course the real reason norway never really joined the eu and wanted to keep a slight distance away was around common fisheries policy because, of course, um, uh, fishing is, is you know, strategic industry, essentially, for Norway. So there are some, there just are some differences. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's certainly some opportunity. I said we talked loudly about the, about the, you know, the Norway option for, as, a, as a good route forward for the UK, um, as transitional, just because it's a treaty that's on the shelf. Yeah. Everyone uh, knows how it works. And it's a good point about the Norway economy. I mean, you can't really think of many large Norwegian firms because Norwegians don't really need to set up firms. They've got... A lot, um, a lot of gas and a lot of oil. Yeah, so some, some big extractive firms. Yeah, absolutely in energy, uh, in, in uh, particularly in gas, um, uh, and you know, often state owned. And of course, the big sovereign mm. wealth fund, which which is important uh, for any. Is that, is that not two percent of all equity in the world? It's, they do. That's right. They have an interesting model. So the this is the uh, the sovereign wealth fund for Norway, um, which was set up. Lots of people say, oh, we should have sovereign wealth funds and things, because the big challenge for an economy the size of Norway with massive petrochemical reserves is it essentially makes your your currency unbelievably strong. Yes. Um, which is a huge challenge to your export. So the whole idea of a sovereign wealth fund for somewhere like Norway is that you get to take an awful lot of your currency and get it invested abroad mm-hmm. and get it offshore uh, as quickly as you can because it just it just helps to control the currency. Mm. Uh, that's not something the UK would ever need to be in a position to do because Patrick, even at the height of the North Sea stuff, we, we never had that much share of GDP coming through that. But that's right, yeah, their investment is the idea that they own uh, one or two percent in in kind of all global companies, Which is all company stocks, isn't it? Yeah, so it's, 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 it's like half a million, half a million pounds to every citizen in the, in Norway. Which yeah, it's phenomenal. It it's a phenomenal strategy, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, um, F, there's been representatives from EFTA who have said essentially that they're open to the idea of adding a, a temporary fifth me- member, but they've definitely always stipulated temporary, mm. which I guess falls in line with. Uh, the response to the Article 50 trigger, um, that the transitionary arrangement would need to be temporary. Um, I just think on that point as well, it's worth stressing that the EFTA membership can't exist on its own. So we talk about EFTA EEAs, Uh, they come as a pair. So one of the very first articles in the the EFTA treaty specifies that EFTA is open to um, countries who are either member states of the European Union or members of the European Economic Area. So it's 
if we were to go down the EFTA route, we would have to go down the EEA route. Which, so, which is why it would be difficult politically, because it's, the government's already said that it wants to leave the single market, and that that's the plan. And going down the EEA EFTA route would not take us out of the single market. If it was time limited and we could say at the end of 2022, we'll coming, we're coming out of EFTA as well, then they could argue that we're coming out of the single market eventually. But um, as a transitionary arrangement, it, it would firmly keep us in. There's, there's, there are benefits to that. I mean, obviously, it means that we don't need that big trade deal, um, at least in the short term, because our trade relations with the EU would, would uh, re- remain essentially the same, um, apart from the kind of customs side of things. There, there is cooperation with EEA after states, but it's, it's not going to be exactly the same as it is now. Um, but then the other benefit, of course, is that EFTA has its own trade deals, and then potentially as a member of EFTA, we could take advantage of those trade deals as well. So... If you're building a trade deal as a member of EFTA, is that a similar process to say if you were in the EU, all EFTA members have to be party to this trade deal? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, so so I mean, there are, there are potential benefits for the for the EFTA countries as well because obviously countries like Norway have, have said that they would like to keep keep tr- strong trading ties with the UK. Um, this would be a way for them to do so. Um, but another one of the kind of big arguments behind this. Um, and this potentially kind of flies in the face of what EFTA is trying to do or wants to be, is that this would potentially be the start of this kind of two-speed Europe. Um, there was lots of people talking about before the referendum how Brexit might be a trigger for something like a kind of EU trade block to take shape, where there'd be the, the political union on one side, but then a group, of com- a group of countries on the other side, which are just a trade block uh, and don't partake in the political side of things so much. Um, so potentially... There was a there was a, a few plans before the referendum essentially, which which said that we could join EFTA and the EEA, but then later on we could kind of push that forward to uh, create a kind of new trading block that isn't isn't so strong on the political side of things. But isn't one of the criticisms of the EU that it doesn't work particularly well as a trading block because the political integration isn't quite there yet? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, which I think is why EFTA is, is trying to not not be as political as the EU. I think that's, that's kind of what it's there for. But whether we would want to kind of go in and kind of smash the whole thing open and say we want to take it in a completely different direction, um, because I think EFTA works pretty well for the countries that are obviously they're massively different to ourselves. Um, and so the idea that we can kind of step into EFTA and then sort of abolish the whole EFTA-EEA type system and, and for, forge this kind of new way... Um, I, I'm not sure if it's wish, wishful thinking, but there was definitely some people putting that argument forward, um, you know, as far back as, as years before the referendum itself. Yeah, and we're, sorry, we're, we're hearing a bit more of that as well from the, from even within the EU. So the you know the, the more recent five presidents' reports, which kind of sets out a few options for the for future direction of EU policy. Um, naturally, of course, one of those is continued integration. Um, so continuing to seek you know political and particularly fiscal union uh, across the, the 27 member states. Um, is all, one of them is also about actually should should the EU a look to to not quite reverse but certainly pause where it is now in terms of integration. Uh, and as Alex said, there's this increasing talk not only of multi-speed because in many ways. The EU runs at multi-speed already. There are Eurozone members, uh, non-Eurozone members like us, of course. We're outside Schengen as well. We're outside bits of the social policy. Um, some of the more the newer states are still working their way through some of those detailed programs. So kind of multi-speed is already in. The, what's interesting, I think, is there are very quiet talks at the minute about actual multi-destination. 
And I think that's the point, because the concept of multi-speed is still about you're all going to get to the same place, which Mm. is fully integrated. They're now actually starting to very quietly discuss, actually, is there an option that potentially there's a a core Europe where everyone is in, where those countries are completely involved, and you could very easily see that being, you know, France, Germany, Benelux, um, which is your core point, which is not only monetary union, but potentially fiscal union and political union, and then you know, decreasing levels of engagement uh, out with, with one option being just purely trade. And can you see this dividing into, say, Northern Europe versus Southern Europe? That's, that's kind of, I guess, the, uh, the $64 million question. Um, I guess the, the Northern Southern Europe challenge is probably one of um, fiscal policy and transfers more than anything else. What I mean by that is essentially you've got you've got at least a two speed at least two sets of economies in europe um mm. uh north and south that's a bit of a generalization but it broadly works for for how we're talking um the you know the big challenge that stretched the eu post recession is this concept of fiscal transfers between the rich and north particularly germany um to the poorer south particularly um greece spain and portugal um that's a political challenge more than anything else. So, you know, I think a lot of people who were who were hesitant about the single currencies introduction um, pointed out many years ago, this is kind of a trap that's been laid and will be burst open only at the first big recession. Um, and of course it has been. So Greece desperately needs fiscal transfers. That means they need to come from wealthier countries. Um, Greece, all individual currency, countries, sorry, who are part of the single currency raise their own bonds um, which is sort of slightly odd because you're all in the same currency, so that all yeah. the bonds should be common, um, really. So, you know, in the same way that London fiscally transfers quite a lot of its wealth out to the rest of the UK, um, that's kind of tacitly accepted because the UK has been a very stable um, polit- single political entity uh, for centuries. What you're asking at the moment is, is Europe comfortable with the concept that countries like Germany and Luxembourg and the Netherlands will be for many decades to come naturally spending moving their tax money uh, into the into the poorer economies of southern and uh, and southeastern Europe and I think there's the, the difficulty you see with Greece's continued bailout and the challenges that the German election this year are causing within all of that um, essentially you know the uh, the German uh, candidates are going to have to go to the public and say all of that, those hundreds of billions of euros we sent we lent to Greece a year or two ago isn't coming back because mm. this is going to be a fiscal transfer, not a loan. Mm. Um, it's still a very hard political call for them to make. But I think it's hard on both ways because we always think about it as how do the German taxpayers think about giving away all of this money? Well, that's kind of irrelevant because. In a lot of ways, it's how much do the Greeks resent having to take German money? It works both ways. I think it's both take German money, and of course, if you move that system closer to where the EU, I guess, probably needs to for this, which is fiscal unity, so we have monetary unity, certainly within the, the single currency, to fiscal unity, what you are at the point of saying is actually that the Greek parliament, is, you come back to the Brexit arguments, essentially, the Greek parliament is no longer sovereign, it will not be able to decide its own budget without having that cleared by other countries or possibly the EU itself, and uh, it's not yet clear that the citizens of Europe uh, are ready for that kind of level of uh, integration.
Well, one thing which has come up in the news this um, this week, and well, we did say it's a quiet new, uh, news week, we're 17 minutes in now, um, was the barista visa. Now, I'm not really sure about what this actually means, but maybe one of you two do. One of you two do. Christian? You yeah, well, let, let, let's have a go. So the whole challenge here is about is fundamentally about freedom of movement and what does the UK do um, once it comes outside of freedom of movement. So we know the e, the UK is one of the most popular destinations for... Baristas. Uh, for, well, for baristas. Um, well, I think was it, was it Boris Johnson in one of his, ma- his speeches as mayor of London talked that London now has more baristas than barristers. Um, <laughs> make of that what you will. Um, but it's really about sort of skills and the ability to move around. So the UK is one of the most popular destinations for EU migrants. Uh, obviously, we are one of the strongest economies, second largest economy, one of the strongest economies uh, in Europe, we've seen a very powerful labour market post-recession, huge creation of jobs, uh, and that has very naturally sucked in labour for, uh, from overseas. The challenge is, once we move outside freedom uh, of movement, how does the UK fill that gap? Uh, now, there are some people who are saying it doesn't need to worry about it because, frankly, we should be training all our own people and getting our unemployed back into work. It's a, it's a nice idea, and undoubtedly there are there is some way the UK can go to improve that. The challenge is we have unemployment at a near 40-year low. Um, there is no massive pool of labour just floating around in the UK uh, that can be dragged into work in that mm. sense. So we're still going to have to rely on immigration. Um, don't forget, historically, only about whilst we've seen very high levels of immigration in the past three or four years, uh, compared to historical norms, only about half of that comes from the EU. So still half of our net immigration goes through the visa system. So the question is, what does that future relationship with European citizens look like? Should all EU migrants in the future go through the same system that non-EU migrants go through now, uh, which is extremely complicated, very large forms, very expensive for firms to go through? Uh, And actually from this financial year, there is also now essentially a tax on having a non-UK migrant, non-EU migrant currently in your workforce, and you'll pay an annual levy Mm. um, to do that. So the question then is actually, well, where are all these European migrants? What industries are they supporting? Um, we know, of course, they're prevalent in, in our NHS, in the wider health and social care system in the UK. Uh, they're certainly prevalent in the hospitality and leisure industries, which is currently the fastest growing part of the UK economy. Is that right? It is indeed, yeah. That's where services are driving it, and the fastest bit is, is around the, the leisure services side. Um, so... Like you, I guess, when we're going to have our, uh, as Andy Burnham called it in a text over the weekend, uh, our posh coffees uh, in the morning. We are often served by EU citizens uh, and not UK citizens. How on earth will we all manage to get our morning coffee uh, if we turn off the flow of EU labour? I mean, real problems. Real, real, real problems. Yeah. Yeah. I think the article I read was, was Pret a Manger, and they said that it was one in 50 uh, applicants to, to barista jobs at Pret were British citizens. Yeah, wow. absolutely. So, so that it, and it is interesting. It, I think it asks, actually, if you you're prepared to take this with a really open mind. It asks some very, very difficult and fundamental questions um, mm. about the the UK labour market and and why it is that UK citizens don't apply um, yeah. for those sorts of jobs. So the question yet is, what does a legal regime look like? Um, and it seems like the government is starting to think about the fact that um, there are some sectors that could be very hard hit um, by clamping down on EU Can migration. I just roll back on this a second. Yeah. So, uh, Bristol visas, right? We've just been speaking about F the EEA membership. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as members of the EEA, we're still party to freedom of movement. So this would st- this would still only be 
post 2022. That's it, post EEA. It would only be an yeah. issue then, yeah, because yeah. we'll have freedom of movement as long as we're part of yeah. either EU or EEA. And this, this, this kind of goes back to the point uh, that we were kind of speaking about before this, is that the more that we talk about this stuff, it, it, it kind of increasingly seems like we're, we're basically just trying to keep everything the same. Yes. And the more that you look into each of these individual issues, you realise that this is kind of a, a two-step job. And the first part of this job really is, is to keep everything as, as similar to how, how things are now as possible. So the divorce is the first bit. I think you you put it in terms of three steps, didn't you, mm. earlier on? Divorce, transitional, and then end point. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it seems like each week we seem to be looking at a new issue, um, and it kind of feels like the objective for the moment is to keep everything very, very similar to how it is now. This is one of these classic Brexit questions. I mean, we were talking before the podcast, weren't we? And you know, I mentioned, is this like the, the, the Australian system? Christian said, absolutely not. And also, it's ridiculous to ask a country to plan its economy three years in, in mm-hmm. the future. So naturally, I raised, well, why don't you just let businesses do their own thing, issue their own visas? But that's exactly what we have, in a way. That, it, in many ways, for EU Labour, that is exactly it. Yeah, so, the, you know, companies advertise a job. Anyone who lives in an EU member state or has, yeah, a citizen of an EU member state can apply, and companies decide where to go from there. It is, it is you know, the true sense of a, a proper supply-demand market clearing system. Um, so yes, so the challenge is what what does that look like if you start to uh, if you start to change some of that? I think one of the things worth diving into on this as well is we've had a lot of talking to companies about some of the challenges of Brexit and particularly on the labour force side is we often get the response saying, well, actually, it's really important that we retain access to the European labour market. They provide a big influx of people to the UK economy. They're hardworking, et cetera, et cetera. I think the challenge is if you dive into that a bit more uh, and scratch that surface. What you tend to find is it's not about that UK companies need access to labour from European countries. It's not that the citizens in Spain or Germany or Italy or Estonia are any more wholesome or beneficial or worthwhile from citizens in other developed economies around the world. What they mean is they want a system which allows access to labour from overseas as easily as they currently have access to labour from within the EU. Um, Now, I think if you look at it through that lens, then actually what the call is for is for a simple, easy and transparent visa system, not what our current tier two visa system looks like for non for non uh, EU Which is citizens. A very long process, I understand. Very long process, eighty odd page form, uh, extremely expensive uh, for companies to go through in terms of the the actual physical cost. Uh, of going through that and I said now there's also now an annual levy as well, so desperately trying to dissuade companies uh, from taking overseas migrants. The big challenge is actually, you know, we've continued to see non-EU migration increase over the past few years. So even putting those hurdles in place, companies are still seeking to recruit. Why is that? Because our labour market is very tight, unemployment is very low, and there is no pool of labour here to fish in. Well, let's just move on from that subject and talk about successful Brexit secretary that UK has ever had. Conversely, uh, one of the least successful. Um, David Davis has said a few interesting things. Uh, about EU institutions based in London. Who would like to kick off with this? Uh, okay, well, I'll give you a quick re- recap of what's happened, essentially. D- David Davis. So, so 
We've spoken in previous podcasts about the EU institutions, which currently oversee a lot of our laws and regulations and things like that. Um, and two of the biggest of those are based in London. So we've got the European Banking Authority, who look after the finance system in the EU. And then we've got the European Medicines Agency. Mm. They're both located in London. Um, and we've obviously, the, the government's kind of come out and said already that it would seek to remain uh, kind of part uh, uh, under the umbrella of a lot of these institutions going forward, as we explained before, as part of the Great Repeal Bill and things like that, to keep things as they are now and to avoid any kind of cliff edge. But what David Davis has said, that he essentially sees no reason why that these two institutions should need to move from London, whereby the messages from the other side, as you would expect, are very much that that's not what's going to happen. And uh, apparently they are already shortlisting uh, countries to be in the running to be the replacement locations for these two institutions. So this is kind of a rubbing point, essentially, where what David Davis is saying we expect very much to happen is is completely the opposite of what Donald Tusk and the European Council are saying is going to happen. Now, what is David Davis's proposal here, that these institutions can stay outside? I mean, it's kind of like having the FCA based in Texas, is it not? It it sort of feels like this. This this feels like a great example of wanting to have your cake and eat it. Yeah, yeah the great Boris Johnson approach. And I think the... I think the kind of way to look at this is to flip this round. You know, the, one of the great reasons that we're going through the Brexit process now, uh, and one of the big red lines that Theresa May has drawn, is that the UK uh, government and parliament should not be subservient to an extra juridical authority outside of outside of its remit. Essentially, we must be outside the, the ECJ, the European mm. Court of Justice. What essentially David Davis's position appears to be is that a an organisation which uh, a supranational organisation which sets regulation for the EU, it's perfectly fine for that to be located outside of the EU, mm. um, and that just kind of feels bonkers. It is mad, so, isn't it? Yeah, um, there is no reason why we would we would not want our and indeed the whole process, the whole reason we're going through this is we don't want um, the government does not want any parts of our regulatory system to being devised in other in other states around the world. Mm. Um, in many ways, you could say it is because, of course, you know, UN and other supranational bodies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but no, this this feels insane, and I don't see why why the EU would allow it or why we would even want to try and stop it. I, mean, I guess the banking one could make sense if they, if, you know, if ties remain very very strong between the EU and and the city. But even that seems like a bit of a stretch. It does, and I think ties will remain strong. Um, you know, there's been lots of talk about where the e, where the euro clearing market sits, because actually most of that is cleared in London at the moment. Um, but increasingly, the whole point of a clearing market is that it exists outside the jurisdiction. The whole point mm. is that you can clear it in a different time zone, so you're not waiting for Frankfurt to wake up in the morning, which is why New York also clears euros, uh, and uh, Southeast Asia also clears euros. Um, but that density of experience and expertise in London, um, will continue you know, regardless and you know, Europe will continue to rely the EU and the Eurozone countries will continue to rely on London to be able to raise a lot of debt um, because actually we're the, we're the world experts in, in that but no, the idea really that, that you'd want a Euro a Eurozone for some and a, Euro, a wider EU regulatory body outside of the jurisdiction um, seems odd and actually I think by keeping it here you would have to have some form of ECJ oversight mm-hmm over those regulatory bodies because that is their court. Now, 
During the Brexit campaign, one of the things which is mentioned time and time again is that Britain's biggest contribution to the EU is actually the fact that it gives a bit of a balance to the power of Germany. Do you think there's going to be a political problem if, I, if one or both of these institutions end up back in Germany? That's a good question. Um, I think it goes to the heart of some of the political challenges. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's fair to say that mostly Germany isn't seen as a, you know, as a massive power threat in the EU. But for some, country, for some European member states, it is that there is still a little bit of hesitancy. I mean, you would only, wouldn't you? If you were a citizen of Greece, you would absolutely say... No, and, and Greece was the example I was going to give, yeah. and actually we've seen we've seen quite a lot of rumblings from Poland recently um, about the way the EU is being run and, and Germany's perceived strength at the heart of all that. Um, I think you're right, and I think what was interesting as well is at the time of the Article 50 notification, there were leaders of some other member states who are, made, who are sort of raising caution that Britain was... Perhaps one of the sole member states that was genuinely championing a more open and liberal Europe. Um, you know, our historic political and economic model uh, is has always been, really, for as long as anyone can remember, much more open uh, and international than a lot of the more left-leaning, uh, the kind of the social democratic model that has emerged in Europe, mm. particularly since the Second World War. And some of those smaller countries who operate on that system, um, Denmark and the Netherlands are probably the two most obvious ones, have said they are going to miss the UK's influence in, as you said, in, in almost sort of trying to be a bit of a, le- a, bit of a rightward, more open market pull uh, within the European system. So I I think there are some challenges, um, you know, and Germany's place within the EU is an odd one. It is, strictly speaking, just another member state, uh, albeit it's the largest economy there, larger than us. Um, it is the only one that runs a government surplus. Essentially, it's the only, it's the only country that's running a profit, if you like, um, <laughs> overall. But that's actually mostly because it's membership of the euro. Um, so it's currently its currency is massively artificially weakened by being connected to that of Southern Europe. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, statistic when you compare the Deutschmark and its uh, and its strength compared to the Swiss franc, and then you look and then you look again with the euro. Actually, it's just a huge devaluation. It is absolutely. And people talk about you know the big you know the long run trade surplus that Germany's had. Germany hasn't has only run a trade surplus since it joined the euro. You know, really? which is essentially dragging its currency, its currency valuation down. Because um, I think without that, its currency would be so incredibly strong now mm-hmm. uh, that it would, you know, its own exports and its external markets would be hit pretty hard. So I think there is a challenge for them about how they balance Europe's role. Um, you know, as, as I've got some friends who are sort of, you know, you know, you know very strong Brexiters in all of this, and you know, some of their interesting comments have been. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, that when we go to talk to the EU about Brexit and all the rest of it, well, we should, be, of course, be talking to the EU institutions because they are the people there. Actually, some of the first people you go to talk to is Angela Merkel. Yes. Who holds no role within the EU mm-hmm. other than being the president of one of the member states. But actually, she's seen as so critical yeah. to getting EU opinion. Um, that you actually talk to her separately. So I think there, I think there are some risks for the EU. Um, but of course, Germany, I guess Germany's position will be, well, look, basically we're the ones that are underwriting all of this. Um, and if you take the UK economy and the UK contributions out of that budget, which are going to happen, um, there are some very difficult questions for, for who else is going to start um, coughing that money up. In the upcoming German election, uh, there is going to be a close competitor to, competitor to, to, to Angela Merkel, who's going to be Martin Schultz. Mm-hmm. Contrary to all the information we've been given about all the other elections, 
that sounds like actually a more European way than say what is likely to happen in France, what is like what was likely to happen in Holland. Yeah, I mean Schultz is of a softer left character um, mm. than the than the kind of the rise of the the rise of the harder right. I guess we've seen in I mean with the French particularly. Um, well, in French up. elections, kind of been good. it looks like it's going to be hard right or hard left. Either way, it's not going to be. Mm. Uh, uh, EU focused. No, and we've got the. I mean, the, the four candidates are all now within the margin of error mm. um, in the polling. Uh, now, the fact they have a two-round system um, in France tends to mean you end up with the least worst. Yes. Uh, option, um, but of course that'll be that'll be hugely dependent on who gets through the first round. If you end up with a hard left and a moderate, or a hard right and a moderate, then the second round will probably pull the moderate through. Yeah. Um, if, you, if it's the hard left and the hard right that go through, then it will be one of those two. Mm. Um, so, no, there's, there's some interest there. So, no, the, the, the Schultz dynamic is interesting. Um, you know, Merkel, I think, has, genuine, has generally, up until the last 12 months, been seen as a very sound and very solid president um, of Germany. I think the way that the migrant crisis was handled last summer has, has, has tarnished her reputation um, significantly. Um, in terms of how they deal with that challenge. Um, well, Merkel's already started to kind of change the things that she's been saying in the lead-up to it, hasn't yeah, she? Yeah, absolutely. Hardening her stance a little bit, um, because I think of the way that the migrant crisis was handled. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just slightly off the beaten track a second here, there was a referendum in Turkey, Erdogan won, it means all sorts of, uh, all sorts of things, but fundamentally... Do you think this could reignite the migrant crisis? Because I think this could be one of the, quietly one of the biggest things to happen to the EU during the Brexit negotiations. It's it, it's a huge distraction, I think, for Europe. So I mean, the, the the EU's relationship with Turkey has been has been it's changed enormously over the years. I mean, they they are one of the you know they were part of the Turkey became part of the customs union very very early on, um, uh, around the same time we joined, I think. Uh, so they've been part of sort of some of that aspect. There was always a desire to get Turkey into into fuller member, if not full, then certainly fuller membership of the EU. Um, but again, this migrant crisis caused problems. So there were there were deals done last year where um, essentially what was being talked about was that the European Union would grant more visas to Turkish citizens uh, if Turkey would do its best to essentially hold back the, the, the flow of migrants from, from Turkey's southeastern border. Mm. Um, I think that was a, a bit of a red flag to the bull to a lot of Brexiters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're saying this is exactly the kind of reason why we should be leaving. Um, you, know, if, uh, you know, nobody's policing the southern borders um, of the EU. And yeah, the, 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 the referendum result this weekend um, talks is essentially about giving much more power to, uh, to the president, um, weakening the role of parliament. Um, I think it's a big, it, it's a really difficult one. You know, the EU has not got its head around this migration issue. Um, it sees free movement as being, you know, such an important pillar overall that it finds, I think, talking about its external hardboard are very difficult. Yes. Um, and of course, every, you know, some of the reasons that people didn't want Turkey to join in the early days is actually, are you giving away 
the EU's external hard border to countries that aren't capable of policing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that, that's, as, that's as relevant to countries up in the northeast who are facing borders with, uh, with Russia uh, and the Ukraine as it is, uh, as it is to Turkey. And if, you, you know, if, Tur- if Turkey becomes the hard border, then essentially Europe is, uh, is rubbing right up against Syria and Iraq. Well, I mean, this is all fairly new, so I'm sure it's going to run and run and we'll get a little bit more detail on it in the future. Uh, right, well, I think that's pretty much about it, gents. Um, anything going on in the Chamber of Commerce which you want to publicise and put out there? Uh, off the top of my head, no. We haven't just come back from a lovely long Easter weekend. Uh, <laughs> we're still getting to grips with it. Um, so, yeah, for now, we'll uh, we'll come back and speak to you all soon. Excellent. Just remind us of your Twitter handles. I'm at GMCC underscore Alex. And I am now at GMCC underscore Christian. Oh, you've changed. I have indeed. We've had wow. a big rebrand this on the research team. Why, why, yeah. why, why, why <laughs> stop the this? Uh, as always, I am pe- uh, sorry, at Jay Beardmore or at Pearson's under, un- underscore FSB. Hang on. Uh, SFB um, all we ask you to do for this uh, wonderful podcast that we put out every week is go onto iTunes leave a review uh, follow us and follow us on um, on Twitter uh, until next week goodbye goodbye thanks ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.